Exodus 32, 1 to 24, and then we're going to jump from 30 to 32. So try to hang in there. It's really long. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden cap. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made it for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is the word of our Lord. Father, um, we just come tonight uh, with a heavy heart, um, just uh, over the accident and the deaths of uh, these students And we don't understand, but we do know that you're good because you tell us that you're good in your word. And so we cling to that and trust that and um, long for you to return uh, so that things like this will never happen again. 
Um, and we pray particularly for the families. Um, those families are now without sons, uh, and that's very difficult. And I pray that you, through your spirit, would be near to them uh, right now, that you would surround them with good community, and that they would see that you are a God that knows what it means to suffer um, because you suffered for us. And so I pray for them uh, this week, and I pray for us and our community and friends um, that you would give us the right words and help us to know when to hug and when to speak and when to listen and all those things that are so hard when we encounter things like this. And so help us as well and comfort us. And Father, we pray for tonight. Um, It's the end of the semester. It's hard to believe, but we um, just want to ask you to come and be present with us through your spirit, uh, through the word. And would you take these words and apply it to our hearts so that we might live differently. Give us ears to hear uh, tonight, uh, hearts to receive, and show us Jesus and show us your incredible grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, You know, one of the most insulting things that you can do to a person uh, is to create an image of them. And that's actually what often leads to the breakup in a dating relationship, uh, and really to the divorce in a marriage relationship. You know, everything kind of starts out really good in the relationship. Uh, Everyone's putting their best foot forward, and you have this great image of the other person, and then the longer you date them and the more that you're around them, uh, the more that image starts to get tarnished and you start to see a few chinks in the armor. Totally normal, okay, because we're broken, sinful people. Uh, And in that moment, you start to realize that they're not the person that you thought they were, that they're not the person that you wish they would be. And normally what happens right there, instead of loving them for who they are and who God's made them and in the midst of their sin and being patient and enduring with them, normally at that moment, people start trying to create them in their own image and forcing them uh, to be someone that they're not. And then what ends up happening is you end up getting very, very frustrated and then the other person in the relationship that you're trying to uh, create into your image ends up getting sick and tired of it and the relationship blows up and eventually comes to an end. And I give you that picture tonight because I think it's the perfect picture for understanding our story tonight. Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf incident. Tonight, the main idea is simply this, if you're a note taker. God wants you to love him for who he is, not for who you want him to be. Now, why does God want that? Well, think about it. It makes sense, doesn't it? Any relationship... If you have any relationship at all, it comes when you look at the other person and love them for who they are, not for who you want them to be. And the same is true with God. God says, if you want a relationship with me, and it is to be personal and intimate, then you've got to love me for who I am, not for who you wished I would be. And who God is is laid out for us. If you've been around RUF, we have a high view of the Bible. 
And so we believe that who God is is laid out for us in the pages of the Bible. Tonight, three points you can see on your outline. We're going to look at the nature of sin, the nature of ourselves or our hearts, and then thirdly and finally we'll finish up with the nature of God. Let's look at number one, the nature of sin. Look at verses one through uh, six with me. And let me give you a little bit of the context here. Moses has been up on the mountain by himself and he's been receiving instruction from God about how to build the tabernacle. God wants to build a tabernacle so that he can come down and be present in and among the people. Well, he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time. And so you can imagine the people, they're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, they get fearful. They wonder what is going on. They get impatient. And then they demand that Aaron make gods for them. And we need to be careful at this point. Don't assume that the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf itself. Because they weren't. Look at verse 5. It's easy to miss. But he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And that is the covenant name, Yahweh, at all caps there. That's the covenant name of God. And so here's what I'm saying. They were not replacing God. They were creating God in their own image. Another way to say it is their sin was worshiping the true God in a false way. And this passage, friends, gives us a great picture of the problem with the human heart. Because this is us. This is exactly what we do. We take the truth that we know about God and we distort it and we make God into our own image. You see, we all have a version of God, don't we? All of us. And to one degree or another, we end up making God into who we want him to be rather than worshiping him for who he truly is. We end up, and in all the editing that we do of God, oftentimes we end up giving him a makeover. And on the other side, he ends up coming out looking a whole lot like us. He ends up coming out looking like a very comfortable Savior. And so here's my question, I think, for this first point. That really is demanded from the passage. How have you tamed God? How have you made God into something that he's not? How have you made God tonight far too comfortable? Have you created a God that demands nothing of you? A God that never seeks to push you out of your comfort zone. So that you're very comfortable with always being around the people that are just like you, that look like you, that think like you, and believe like you. Have you created a God that just wants you to be happy? Is that your view of God? That God wants me to just simply be happy and that's all he wants from me. 
does the Bible do nothing more than lead you to a boring yawn as you hear about it and read it? Does your severest wrath always go for the people that are in your life, your friends, your roommates, your parents? So in other words, is your wrath saved for other people's sin and never the sin that exists within your own heart? Or maybe you are far more concerned with being in than you are with the condition of your own heart. And if any of those things are true of you, and we could go on, but if you would answer yes to any of those, then friends, you have made God into a comfortable Savior. You have made God into your image. You have tamed him. And God refuses to be tamed. He refuses to be controlled and manipulated and put in your debt. And if you don't believe me, look at how he responds. If you heard Taylor reading the passage, he responds very strongly to what the people are doing here. And here's the thing I want you to see, though. It's not really that. It's why. And the reason why that God refuses to be tamed is because he wants you. He wants a real relationship with you. Which means that you have to come to him and worship him for who he is rather than who you want him to be. Because if not, then you don't have a real relationship, just like you don't have a real relationship with the person in your life that's always trying to create you into something you're not. That's not a real relationship. Second point, the nature of our hearts or the nature of ourselves. Look at verses 21 through 24. And so here's where we are. We're admitting that there is no relationship with God unless you deal with God on his own terms, not a projection of him. Well, the reverse is also true. You can't have a relationship with God unless you come and come to God as the real you. It makes total sense, doesn't it? And we see this every season on The Bachelor. Think about it. The girls are trying to win this hot guy. And it's easy to see looking back at it, but the relationship never works, does it? It never lasts. It never really works out. Why? Because who the girls are behind closed doors, think about it. They're backbiting. They're angry. They're full of insecurity. They're fighting and bickering with one another. And that's not who they are in front of him. In front of him, they're having these perfect dates. And they're putting forth a projection of themselves rather than coming as they truly and really are. And you can't keep that up. It just doesn't work over the long haul. And so all of that comes crashing down in the relationship at some point, and normally we read about it in the tabloids, eventually blows up, doesn't it? And it's because they're putting forth an image of themselves, not the, real, not, not the real them, in a sense. And that's what we see going on here. Moses comes down from the mountain, 
and he breaks the Ten Commandments, and that shows you the seriousness of what is going on with the people. And he goes and he demands an explanation from his brother Aaron. And look at how Aaron responds. He immediately goes into damage control. Look at the response. He goes into damage control. Notice what he does. He tries to keep Moses and God from dealing with the real Aaron. And so instead of taking responsibility, he tries to control and manage their perceptions of him. He tries to protect his reputation and his image before them. And so look at what he does, verse 22. He starts to blame the people. Look at verse 22, and here's, the, here's kind of the, the tone of it. Don't let your anger burn against me. It's them you're really after, God. I mean, think about it. You know their heart is intent on doing evil. That's kind of what he's saying. And it gets better. Look at verse 23. I love this. He kind of underhandedly, if you notice, blames Moses, doesn't he? And basically, basically says, Moses, if you just would have come down in time, I wouldn't have to worry about all this. And so he puts the blame on Moses in an underhanded way. And he refuses to admit and take responsibility to his, for his sin. And instead, he manages his reputation and image and tries to control people's perceptions of him. And he does it through blame shifting. That sound familiar? It sounds familiar to me because that's what I do. My temptation and knee-jerk reaction is almost always it's someone else's fault. It's my kids, my wife, or it's my circumstances. I just didn't get any sleep last night. And so that's why I got so angry and rather than admitting that we are the problem we will grasp at any straw in order to protect our image and protect our reputation and control people's perceptions of us I love G.K. Chesterton he's a philosopher and he's got this he tells this story about a time he got a letter in the mail and it said Dear Mr. Chesterton, what is the greatest problem in the world today? He replies back to the person and said, Dear sir, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. We don't believe that. And I don't believe that. And because we don't believe that, we always think the problem is outside of us with someone else around us and we will blame anyone and anything for our sin we blame alcohol and say well if if I wouldn't have drank so much then I wouldn't have done those things or we blame our parents and we say well I wouldn't have to cheat in school if my parents just didn't put so much pressure on me to get straight A's and to always do you know the very best in the class And we don't stop there. We even blame God, don't we? I mean, think about the ways that we blame God. And maybe we don't say these things out loud, but we say in our hearts, God, it's your fault. 
I mean, if you would have just answered my prayer, if you would have just shown up, then I wouldn't be in this mess and I wouldn't have these problems. Or we say, God, you made me this way. And because you made me this way, it's your fault. That's why I'm struggling with all these things. See, we blame anything and everything rather than taking responsibility for what is inside our heart. And you know what the book of Exodus shows us? That God wants a relationship with us. And he redeemed and rescued his people so that he could have a real intimate and personal relationship with them. And you know how it happens? It happens when we stop pretending and stop blame shifting and when we go to God as we really are. It happens when we go to God and say, God, it's all true. And it's worse. And then the question comes, and it's natural, and it's a good question. Okay, Jason, if you're saying I need to be the real me when I come before God in order to have a real and intimate personal relationship with him, there's no way. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know the places I've been. You don't know who I am. There's no way that I can be the real me and go to the God that we've talked about in the book of Exodus. That will not work. But maybe it will work. That leads us to the third point. The nature of God. Look at verse 10. God says to Moses, pretty strong language here, let me alone that my anger may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And we have a hint here that God is actually wanting Moses to intercede for the people. And that's exactly what happens. Moses comes and he he appeals to God on behalf of the people. And here's what I want us to see. And if you've been dozing off, stay with me because this is it, okay? 11 through 13, don't miss this. Notice what happens here. Notice Moses' appeal has nothing to do with the people. It has nothing to do with their goodness. Moses goes to God and notice that he doesn't say, God, don't destroy them because they're better than other people or the next group. He doesn't go and say, God, don't destroy them because they've had a bad day and they've had a few rough days. Just be patient with them. What does he do? Look at 11 through 13. He goes and he prays for mercy. And what does he appeal to? He appeals to God's promises and to God's character and to who he is. Because Moses knows that our only hope for forgiveness and to be rescued is found in the character of God himself. Not in the character of man. And I don't know about you, but let's all breathe a deep sigh of relief. Because that should be tremendous encouragement for you. For whatever you brought into this room tonight. 
How can you go to God as you are? How can you go to God with your depression and with your addiction and with your shame and with your guilt and with your brokenness and with your dysfunctional relationships and with your sin that seems to never go away? How does that happen? Because who you are has nothing to do with your hope. Let me say it another way. You being made right with God and being in relationship with God, and you got to hear this, has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God and who he is and his character. In other words, God's grace comes to you not because you're better than other people. God's grace comes to you not because you read your Bible. God's grace comes to you not because you make promises to never do that thing again or because you know good doctrine. God's grace comes to you because of who he is. Because of his character. Friends, over and over and over and over this semester, here's what we've seen, okay? Let me just summarize it. God is committed to failures. God's committed to failing people. And I know, I don't know where you are, but isn't that good news? I mean, isn't that exactly what we need to hear tonight? Because I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Jason, wait a minute. How can God be committed to me when I say the things I say to people and about people? How can God be committed to me when I use alcohol the way I use alcohol? How can God be committed to me when I use my sexuality the way I use my sexuality? How can God be committed to me when I use food the way I use food? How can God be committed to me when I medicate the way I medicate to relieve the pain and to escape what's going on in my world and in my life? You know how he can do it? Because he forsook his only son on the cross. You know how he can be committed to you, that committed to you, so that he can never leave you nor forsake you? It's because he killed his son. And you know why he did it? So that he would never have to leave you for all eternity. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. And the call of Exodus is this. Come to the real God and you can have a relationship with him. But it means that you have to come as the real you. And you have to admit that you contribute nothing. And I don't know about you, but that is the best news in the world. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, um, thank you that though we are faithless and full of fear, that you remain true and steadfast and that you remain committed to us. Lord, would you melt our hearts with that? 
so that we would love you more uh, and even worship you now with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.